Hey guys, it's Keith. I spoke last time about travel and how I don't really think every destination is worthwhile. And I want to expand on that a bit more broadly to everything in life, particularly consumer goods, because consumer goods have price tags on them. And I've been thinking a lot about value and my mind goes in a lot of directions here, so I want to try and coalesce these ideas and maybe find some sort of through line while speaking extemporaneously on this topic. You know, on this last trip I took, it was a cruise with my parents and my brother, and we're a tight family. We have our squabbles and differences like anybody, but we spend a lot of time together, and we value that. That's like a uniform shared value that we have, which is family and togetherness and quality time. It's maybe even a shared love language to a degree, you know, not quite, but by and large, it's a kind of Western value as well, maybe a universal human value, even more so in the East, I would say. Westerners are more individualistic, but family is obviously a big deal for people, and I've always made sure to make time for my family. But, you know, that time looks different depending on the context and depending on the permutations of the family members. My mom and I like to shop together, and she is quite obsessed with value, I would say. I would even say that my brother and her share a similar value in terms of saving money, perhaps, whereas my father would be more spendthrift and happy to just fork out whatever something costs because his value lies more in the experience and smoothness. He has the luxury, perhaps the privilege, of thinking that way a bit, though, you know, my parents are basically the same at this point. They, they still come from slightly different places, and I do think it shades people's attitudes, you know, how they grow up. And not just that, you know, we just have per different personalities. And I find myself kind of in between all of these things, you know, like... I, I do yearn, I strive to be more like my father in terms of just putting down the money because you have it and you move on. You know, I, I admire, <laughs> I don't know if admire is the right word, but I, I envy wealthy people who don't have to think about money. I mean, that is the goal, right? To not think about money, to not worry if you can afford something. If you can afford everything, you're Cost-benefit analysis shifts drastically. Rich people still have these sort of algorithms in their minds, you know. Just because you have all the money in the world doesn't mean that you want to buy everything. And there's always the opportunity cost when you do something. So thinking about that cruise, you know, I was speaking about how, you know, Panama and Central America in general, and at this point the Caribbean, they aren't really like the places of the world that speak to me the most, speak to me the best, that entice me or excite me. And because I went there for Thanksgiving holiday, I didn't go back to Europe somewhere, like the Mediterranean, which I love. Um, I didn't stay in LA with people that I care about here. I didn't go to my hometown and just have a relaxing time there. So all of those were costs. They would have saved money probably, possibly. Um, it's hard to really know that. Um, 
it's hard to know if you actually spend more money on vacation or not, you know, because if you're at home, maybe you update all your furniture and that ends up costing you more. But in any case, things have costs. And I think for some people, and, you know, at least for the point of this conversation, let me just characterize my family members in these ways, even if it's not 100% accurate, I think they can forgive me. For uh, illustrative purposes, I could say that perhaps my brother specifically cares about the sticker price of a thing. And a good example would be that he would choose an inside cabin on a cruise ship because it's more affordable and he doesn't value a sea view. What he does value is saving the money. You know, I ended up, I, I kind of agreed on this that, you know, we were about to share a room together and I really value my personal space, my privacy, and also a frictionless experience, a less stressful experience. So I was really gunning to just have my own room and was happy to deal with whatever cost that came with because the benefit was so large. It would save my family a lot of undue stress and annoyances to prevent the bickering that would inevitably ensue constantly with my brother and I sharing a room because we live different lives. We wake up at different hours. We have different priorities, etc. We're adult men as well. And I think at some point, it doesn't really make sense to have a roommate if you can prevent it. So he valued that less because he was putting such a primacy on the cost of the actual money spent without really taking into account the benefits and how much money it could be worth to spend a little more here and there, like for an extra room. And I ended up calling this cruise line and wondering if I could get an upgrade. And it turns out that like a balcony room was $100 more, which was like, you know, 5% more or something really low, maybe 10% more than what I was already paying for an inside cabin. And to me, that was just an easy decision because, you know, for a 10 day, a nine day cruise, that's like 10 or $12 a day to be able to open a door in your room and look out at the sea and have your coffee or breakfast there and just be able to like take photos of the Panama Canal from there and, you know, just take photos of the sunsets and enjoy the sunset from there every day. It was just so, it was invaluable, you know? I mean, obviously there is a, there is a, a moment at which I would also demure for whatever sticker price there was. But I was just running this kind of rubric of like, there's more to value than just the monetary value, right? And I think about that a lot with like consumable goods, you know, like if you take like cinema, which my family is also very into, um, you know, going to the cinema is a really fun event by and large, of course, with exceptions. And yeah, it's just a nice event to do. It's something to do. It's something they put on your schedule. You go there, you sit down and you enjoy this immersive experience. And the funny thing is that, you know, a cinema, a, like a cineplex, it values all movies the same. You have to pay the general admission no matter what you're seeing. So, you know, even if you're watching like a three hour movie, you know, a big blockbuster Marvel movie or something versus like a small indie movie that's an hour and 25 minutes. You have to pay the 12 to $18, whatever the cinema charges, no matter what you're watching. 
Now, that's not the only value, right? There's also the quality of the film, and that value is left to critics by and large. Critics put some sort of number or rating on each individual film. So, you know, if you go to see like a great Oscar award winning, as if that means anything these days, film for, you know, 15 bucks, that does feel like a better value than going to see some rubbish, terrible amateurish work for the same 15 bucks, right? So already like things get a little tricky in terms of figuring out the value of your time spent. Oftentimes, you know, especially in today's post-pandemic age with streaming and, you know, flat screen TVs, large OLED screens becoming so affordable, you know, our living rooms and homes being so valuable at this point to everybody, you know, that cinematic experience can almost be recreated and even better at home. The other day, my friend was enticing me to go see uh, the latest Noah Baumbach film in theaters uh, at the Los Feliz 3, which is a cool indie cinema here in LA. And I like that cinema. I love the street that it's on. It has a cool vibe inside. It has like a quite, quite you know, classic aura. But the problem is that it has these three auditoriums. Auditorium 1 is a really nice, large, classic, you know, old school somewhat uncomfortable. Actually, I think they retrofitted and changed the seating. It's a nice, good, large screen where you can really enjoy a film. But the other two auditoriums are bad. You know, they're small rooms with little screens and they throw the the pathway down the seating straight down the middle of the room. So you can't even sit in the middle and see the screen properly in any, in any situation. And I happen to know that that cinema now rents out its major auditorium to a retrospective program. And anything first run plays in one of those two smaller auditoriums. And I just thought, it's not worth going to see this movie, even though I want to see the movie. You know, it's on my list, I would say, white noise. Um, I'm open to seeing the movie, and I would enjoy a theatrical experience, you know, a theater experience. But it's also on Netflix. And I really enjoy watching movies in my house because it's like my TV is really good, you know? So, like, my dad was even telling me that I should see, um, you know, this new film Bardo by Inuratu. I should see this in the cinema because it's the visuals are so excellent, etc. And I totally understand where he's coming from. And I've said the same thing throughout my life multiple times. But... Nowadays, I'm just not so sure because I can quality control the environment of my place and who I'm with and what I'm consuming and how comfortable I am. I can control all that so much better in my house and my screen looks excellent. So I can be just as immersed if I black out my room with the vivid colors of my OLED screen on like a 65 inch screen. Like I can feel a cinematic experience from my couch. So I'm just not even sure if it's always the case that going to an actual cinema will ensure that because nowadays there's just no quality control on how good that cinema is necessarily. I mean, obviously sometimes there is, you know, but then you have to like order the tickets, pay a service fee, pick your seats, possibly not even knowing which ones are exactly in the middle, who's going to sit next to you, who's going to be in front of you, how much noise they might make, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, 
if you even if you value the cinema, which I would say my dad and I agree on, you really have to get into the weeds in terms of what you're valuing specifically, right? I mean, to be lost in an engrossing and beautiful and captivating and aesthetically pleasing story and visual experience, that is something that, you know, really makes life worthwhile. I would agree with him on that. But how often is it the case that that is being achieved is the question. Can it be guaranteed to be achieved nowadays when in an era that I would argue that Hollywood is failing us and giving us activist garbage and rehashed remakes and sequels of child like kid stories like this is not interesting for me and you know I went and saw you know I did a podcast about this I went and saw um that movie I can't believe it's nominated for best picture now I mean I guess I can believe it because the Oscars have been trash for so long now but that film um everything everywhere all at once I went to see that at the Los Feliz 3. It was playing in one of those small cinemas. The movie is terrible, despite what everybody seems to be agreeing on in some sort of mind virus kind of way. And, you know, Sasha and I walked out of that, left Ryan in there. He wanted to watch it still. We went into the big auditorium, one, and they were playing Hitchcock's Frenzy, and it was excellent. And it was one of the best movie-going times that I've had in a long while. And it's just, it made me think, you know, if you want to see good cinema, it has to be old and it has to be in like a classic theater, basically. And that's film. That's like the era, that's the, um, the topic of film and video and cinema movies, which have been like my major passion in terms of media throughout my life. It was like probably my second love after TV you know, I think every kid's first love media-wise is TV, maybe video games, but really the TV screen in the house. Um, I got into books, you know, slowly but surely. Some classics in high school hit a nerve, more in college, and then picking up in my 20s. Then in my 30s, I spent most of my time reading my reading books. And when I moved to Berlin, I kind of like slowly stopped watching as many films because it was harder. It was harder to find movies in English. It was harder to find you know, quick new releases of the most avant-garde flicks that would only show up in New York art houses for a week and then disappear. So my passion for that just like started subsiding a bit. You know, that was also, you know, not quite, that was just after the golden age of TV, you know, with Mad Men and Breaking Bad and stuff. That was a great time. Nowadays, as I've said before here, I've been getting into video games and my excitement for video games is already starting to wane, you know, it's kind of like my era of the broken foot is, you know, also kind of starting to pass. My foot is healing. I still have pain. But, you know, I'm about six months out from time of injury. And getting the Nintendo Switch and playing Breath of the Wild on that, on that console was really the epitome of my broken foot era, I would say. And what a thing to have when you can't move, you know, to be immersed in this game. I ended up playing that game for 280 hours. And that's incredible value for a AAA release from Nintendo with a market price of 60 bucks or 60 pounds in my Nintendo eShop in the UK where I've registered it. 
Um, on top of that, I was lent that game by my buddy Michael, who encouraged me to get the Nintendo in the first place. You know, that's just incredible value all around, you know, because it was free on top of everything else. And even though my interest in video games is already starting to wane and I'm starting to, you know, play, pick up the system less and less, I have really enjoyed building out a collection to have a certain set of games, around 30 at the moment, that I can just go to and play, you know, because I just, I got very excited to like look into the world of gaming, you know, from a, from my personal standpoint, my vantage point, and to think what games speak to me, you know, I want a racer game, Mario Kart, of course, but also like vintage racers that like bring back the vaporwave aesthetic. I've gotten a couple of those, you know, um, Slipstream and Outrun, and I want some shooter games, you know, where you're like in space and in this Galaga style and like you're just, you know, dodging bullet hell and just, you know, getting new weapons all the time and changing your shooting patterns. I like that kind of stuff, you know. And I want Metroidvania games where you're like in this maze and it's 2D, but it's gorgeous and it has like maybe retro aesthetics, maybe not. And you get power ups and you're about discovering things and getting keys and whatever. You know, and I'm just like, I've been obsessed with Hollow Knight for the past month or so. And I've been consuming a lot of YouTube content about Hollow Knight. So, you know, I've gotten interested in games by and large. And it's led me to like nerd out a bit as I do. So I'll confess, I have a spreadsheet about video games. I also have a spreadsheet about music and films. But those spreadsheets are really unwieldy. It's hard to like lay out the best music. My dad asked me, and I've podcasted about it, like, what are the best classic rock songs of all time, you know? And we, he sent me a Word document, and I turned it into a spreadsheet. Cause it's like, you really want to throw in a lot of criteria here, and you want to sort by that criteria, and you want to create formulas to really figure out, at least, you know, like, if you're doing a, um, a list with another person, you at least have to have your own rankings and then average them or something to create a master ranking, at least. But then you can throw in, like, how other factors like how much does this qualify as classic rock are there guitars you know whatever with video games my list is really it's been an interesting thing to create because unlike film or even music you know like in the era of music i should have mentioned as a first love for christ's sake you know i was obsessed with music you know from my um adolescence onward um, until recently, I've like really cooled off. I have a spreadsheet that like ca uh, categorizes my favorite albums by year. And 2013 is by far the best year in music, in my opinion, just to rattle off some album names or maybe just the artists. You know, Phoenix, Arctic Monkeys, Vampire Weekend, Washed Out, Beach Fossils, Sleigh Bells, Foles, Widow's Peak, Churches, Gold Panda, Teen Days, Kid 606. You know, it was just a great year for music. Um, Blank Banshee, Burial. Uh, you know, I just, I can really attest that my interest in music basically peaks with that era of bands and artists. And when I'm here now building out my library in my home, you know, buying CDs again and maybe getting into vinyl, but probably not, maybe even tapes. Um, 
it's really fun to like be able to like think about which albums speak to me the most and curate my garden so to speak you know i don't want to collect everything i don't want to own everything i want to have what speaks to me the most you know what what means the most to me i see a collection like a portrait i see uh, cultivating a collection of media like drawing a self-portrait or looking in the mirror and thinking that is me i'm looking at myself and my interests objectified in this fashion and that's what this is about you know and I think value comes into that in multiple ways, right? So vinyl is very expensive. The market for buying records is really wild because of collectability and limited presses and stuff like that. You know, I don't know if I'm going to buy a Ratatat LP, an LP for you know 100 bucks. I don't quite think that that's worth it to me. I don't think that's a fair value of that album. You know, there might be one or two albums ever that I could fathom spending that on maybe radiohead's kid a deluxe edition or something but i don't really appreciate that record collecting has such fluctuating values within it whereas buying cds you know they're 10 bucks you know they're probably used um but cds cost 10 bucks in general that's just like what the market price is and it doesn't really matter what the cd is of course, there's exceptions, there's special limited editions and packaging and whatnot, but I appreciate like a fixed price for something like kind of like going to the cinema. With video games, it's different. So like on my video game spreadsheet, you know, I've made this in order to figure out what my collection should be, which out which games I've bought already out of kind of, um, let's say, impulse um, or just you know, unadulterated desire to have that game, maybe even if I regret it. Um, and then there are games where it's like, okay, wait, let's slow down. Let's look for sales, which, you know, I can do with the site Deku Deals, which is excellent. It tracks all the, you know, the market price and sale prices of every game and links to other games similar and shows you screenshots. It's like a great resource. So I've taken a lot of that information, put it into a spreadsheet, and I think like, oh, I should have another two-player game. I should have like a brawler game, like a Dungeons and Dragons style thing. You know, Scott Pilgrim, perfect. It's on sale. Excellent. You know, like this kind of thought process, you know. And it just really gets me to like this question, ultimately. How do you calculate value? And it's a personal question. And I guess it's a mathematical question. I don't even know if there is a proper formula. But I want to just talk through how I'm looking at it and get your thoughts on it or share mine anyways. So, you know, like I said, Breath of the Wild, the Legend of Zelda series, it's considered the best game on the Switch by a long shot, I think. Maybe Super Mario Odyssey is up there. But Breath of the Wild is a masterpiece. It's beloved by everybody. The Metacritic score is 97. The user score is less. It's 87. I don't know quite how it dips below 90. Um, that averages to 92. I give it a 90, you know, which is kind of the highest I usually will go. And then I've kind of averaged all of those, or maybe I've taken, uh, yeah, I average all three of these scores, the Metacritic score, the online user score, and my personal score. And then I give this a 91 of a rating. And then I think, like, what is the price for this game? It retails for 60 pounds. 
It goes on sale for 42 pounds once in a while. I'm kind of waiting for it to go on sale again because I actually want my own digital copy. I always will have this save file of my 280 hours spent on that game. And I want to maintain that even when I give back the cartridge to my buddy Michael. You know, um, so I'm trying to figure out what the value is personally. You know, like if everything was free and if I was very wealthy and 60 bucks meant nothing to me and I could spend it 100 times and not feel it, then maybe I would just look at the rating as the value. But money is an object. And I'm trying to calculate, like right now I have a column called value and the formula I have in it, on it for the spreadsheet is taking the rating score and subtracting the price paid. Now, I paid nothing, so that would make this a rating of 91, which is like far and away the best value that I have. Once I give it back, it's like I don't have the game. So then it's like, if I buy it at retail, that subtracts 60 from the score and that puts it at 31, which is a terrible value. But that's not right, you know, because I really value that game. I've put more time into it than anything. And maybe I should take time into consideration. So you can see that this formula becomes very complex. Right now I'm doing the price paid. Like if I paid the sale price, that would put the value at 51. Still not very fair. It does put the game Hollow Knight in first because Hollow Knight is probably my favorite game. It's more unique and interesting than Breath of the Wild. Um, Very moody, very fun, great action and adventuring and platforming and combat and lore even. Um, I'm not much of a lore guy, but it's cool. And that game is an indie game, which I also value. You know, I've always valued indie media from music, quite literally indie music, independent cinema. All my favorite stuff is indie And I love that Hollow Knight is an indie game made by basically two guys. And as such, it's affordable. It's very cheap compared to a AAA, you know, mainstream game like Breath of the Wild released by Nintendo. Hollow Knight released by Team Cherry retails for 11 bucks. You know, that's amazing. 11 pounds, I should say. I think maybe 15 bucks. And its sale price goes down all the way to 550. I bought it at full price, and it still is by far the best value game I have, especially considering I've put in over 100 hours now on it. I don't think that 100 hours will ever touch Breath of the Wilds because I don't know if I'll play it again and if I would go as slowly the second time. But it's very replayable. It's very fun. Um, I just love being in that world, and every hour I've spent on it has been valuable and the monetary cost of each hour is very low you know in a way maybe you should maybe the formula could be something like you know the average rating score of some sort um i don't know maybe divided by the hour or the monetary amount per hour something like that it's hard to say you know there are other games um i'll tell one little story so like in October or November, uh, Ryan and Christine and I went to the cinema to watch um, the film Triangle of Sadness, which is great. Uh, I think The Square is probably a little better by the same director, but it's a fun movie. It's a cool movie. It's a bit long. You know, I, I, sh- I shouldn't even say it's great. I should temper it a bit. It's a cool, interesting movie. We wanted to go to the cinema, see this movie on the big screen. 
so long as it was going to be like a worthwhile experience, you know, like sadly, you know, like going to <laughs> the Americana in Glendale was the safest way to do that, you know, because these are like very modern, you know, stadium style seating, uh, large screens, clean, you know, good, well-controlled environment. I put all three tickets on my card, 60 bucks, and I felt good about doing that, you know, um, I mean, my friends and I all pay for each other. That's not really the point. Just that it didn't seem like an exorbitant amount to spend to go to the movies. 20 bucks for a ticket is a bit much, but it was what it was, and it's something we wanted to do. We don't do it very often. The movie was like two and a half hours long, and, you know, then we left and came back to mine, and we were hanging out, drinking, etc., and we wanted to play a game, and... We were like in the Nintendo eShop and I was showing them like my wish list of games that I was considering. And we happened upon this game called Gone Home, which is another indie darling kind of game. It's it's interesting from a genre point of view. It's interesting, I guess, from a story point of view. It garnered all this attention because it's like, I don't know, it's kind of in this like leftist space of like an LGBT story, if I can say that. And we played it, but I didn't want to buy it because it wasn't on sale and at this point i was just like only trying to buy games on sale the game is like 12 bucks so like a dollar more or a pound more than hollow knight my favorite game the average play time to complete everything is like five hours okay it would go on sale for like three bucks and i was just thinking just wait for that, you know, like, I'll play the game, I'm curious about what the fuss is about, it looks kind of interesting aesthetically, and like, from a gameplay perspective, but I don't know if I want to spend the full market price on it, and Ryan and Christine made the argument, like, you just dropped 20 bucks three times on tickets for a movie that lasted two and a half hours, and it was just, it wasn't the best movie you've ever seen, like, what's the problem with spending 12 bucks on a game that you can own, play again and again if you want to. And it was a convincing argument, you know? And we got a good weekend's worth of time out of it. So it wasn't like a crazy amount of money. And yet, for some reason, I'm not happy with how that went because I know I could have spent less and I know that there are better games to play, you know, having now played that game. You know, it leaves a bit of a funny taste in my mouth. I'm, gl I'm glad to have played it. I would have rather paid less, even though monetarily it's not that big of a deal, you know? And yet, so in my mind, why is it that it was a worse value than the cinematic movie-going experience of this other film? Why is that? It's funny, isn't it? There are other games, like, I guess my point is that games all cost different prices. Um, they also have their critic ratings. They're so vastly different from one another in ways that music and cinema aren't. Which I think is what is so exciting to me about video games. Even as I'm like already backing out of this world a little bit, you know, nearing what feels like a complete collection for me at the moment. Of course, I'll get the Hollow Knight sequel and the Breath of the Wild sequel when those come out. But like, I don't need to keep accumulating games. I'm not going to spend my life as a gamer only playing games. I have other interests, you know. But like, games can take 500 hours to play. These big time titles, these AAA games, 
these worlds that I don't even bother going into because they're not my thing. They're not the, you know, retro 2D platforming indie kind of games that I like. You know, you can spend your whole life playing one world immersive game after another. And maybe those are worth 60 bucks each if you get 500, 500 hours of playtime out of them. And I can see why gaming is so addictive for so many people. But the greater point is just how varied that gameplay experience is. You know, like, of course, there are different genres of, music, of movies and of music. And seeing a certain kind of drama is wildly different than watching a horror or a comedy, perhaps. I say wildly different, but is it? I mean, at the end of the day, it's a camera showing you a story. And with video games, it's kind of the same concept, you know, like from an artist's point of view, it's a blank canvas and you can do anything you want. You can have it be a first person shooter, you can have it be a third person walking simulator, you can you know, you can have a Tetris, you know, that's or you can have even board games and puzzle games that are like wildly different than, you know, an open world action game and you know this is not even to say anything about vr and multiplayer and whatever online stuff but like the the sensory experiences of all these can just be so different and the stories they tell can be so wildly varied in their time a five hour game versus a 500 hour game you don't see that kind of swing in any other media you know i mean in music, I suppose you have, you know, certain artists like John Cage, you know, really playing with the boundaries of what music can be and can write a song that supposedly lasts decades, but it's just three notes, you know, it's more conceptual. It's just conceptual art at that point. Songs are, you know, two and a half to five minutes by and large, always. Movies are basically an hour and a half to two and a half hours, almost always. With video games, you see this wild swing. And who's to say that those 500 hours are even better or more worthwhile than a five-hour game or maybe a 20-hour game? Maybe there's that sweet spot. In my opinion, like, I don't want to spend all that time. So at some point, there's diminishing returns. You know, Legend of Zelda, you know, 280 hours is a lot of time for that one game. I would say that wouldn't happen again or wouldn't happen if I hadn't had a broken foot, you know? And so I'm like really considering what the value really is for something like a video game. And I think probably the ideal game would cost next to nothing, let's just say free, would take any plastic infinite amount of time to play, as in you could feasibly play it for one minute and have that rush of perfect excitement encapsulated in that minute and do that again and again and again for a hundred million hours and that would be great and then the gameplay would just be so smooth and so like everything about it would just feel so right all of the time and essentially that's just your imagination you know like you can just do that in your head probably or possibly with a pill you know and it just it's funny to me like video games are essentially a gateway into somebody else's imagination and it awakens the imaginations within each of us. I think all media does that. Movies aim to do that. Music does that. Books do that. 
And that's what's so great about media, you know? And I think someone like me is so attracted to media because I do enjoy these kind of adventurous, open-minded experiences. And I think it says something about me and about each of us, the kind of media properties that we're drawn to. You know, it's like a kind of hackneyed question on a first date, like what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite book? But we ask these questions to try and get to know people because it says something. Like you want to spend 20 hours in this book. You know, if it's like <laughs> a historical fiction set in, you know, the Civil War era, that's harder for me to relate to, you know, like Pride and Prejudice fans, Jane Austen fans, or, you know, just Civil War buffs. You know, like this is a world that I'm like very bored by I guess I would say you know it could be interesting for sure um but it's not where I'm like spending my time in my head so like that kind of creates some distance on a date let's say and perhaps unfairly perhaps unfairly but I would argue that like if you name enough of your favorite things and you name enough different media of your favorite things you know like if if somebody's favorite movie is Titanic and their favorite uh, musical artist is Shania Twain, and their favorite book is Pride and Prejudice, I'm, I'm very unlikely to get along with this person or date them. You know what I mean? And it's not that I judge those things or begrudge those things. It's just that I am so much more attracted to other things, and there's always this opportunity cost when you choose to invest in a certain medium, you know, a certain story or experience and i guess what's so exciting is that like once you really get to know yourself over time this is what wisdom is something like this you know like you really understand yourself your interests why you're interested in those things the exact textures and colors and sensations that attract you that you identify with you know like in this era of identity like i identify with my favorite media, you know? I identify with black comedy. I identify with indie sensibilities. I identify with electric guitars, synthesizers, um, you know, telephoto lenses, you know, moody, um, moody landscapes, moody mise-en-scene, you know? In a, in a film, I wanna see a certain art direction. I want to see a certain character arc. Like these are the things that I identify with. And I guess it's just been kind of fun in a giddy, you know, way. It's brought me back to a youthful mindset to get into a new whole genre of media like video games and to try and ascertain exactly what I value within each game and if each um each item for sale offers enough value for me. You know, I'm looking at Mega Man, which is an intellectual property that I've loved since being a kid, or I should say I loved as a kid. Mega Man 2, you know, playing that with my brother was extremely formative. You know, we loved that game. I'm going back for Christmas. You know, I'm going to drive to my hometown and I'll see my brother there. And I'm thinking, like, maybe I should have that game and play it with him. And... I'm wondering if I want to do that. It's a little tricky for technical reasons. Um, you know, like, 
I broke a controller. I don't know if I have two proper controllers that I can use now. Um, they're hard to get maybe because of the holiday season, like ordering on Amazon. Now it's not expected until after Christmas. There's kind of like maybe a supply side, a supply chain issue of getting all the you know equipment from China and stuff. Um, you know, there's some tricky parts to that, but even the game itself, you know, it's being sold as a Mega Man Legacy Collection from Capcom on the Switch. It contains Mega Man 1 through Mega Man 6. 2 and 3 were the ones that I cared about. And it looks like a cool enough packaging, I guess. I mean, it doesn't look that great. I watched some YouTube videos about it. It's a lot of nerds going on about, you know, all these like little historical details you can study from it and stuff. And I guess that's cool. Um, I just want to play the game and I want it to be fun and smooth. And I don't want cartoon bars surrounding the screen because it's, you know, made for a different aspect ratio back in the 4.3 TV days. You know, like, how do you handle that on a modern, you know, widescreen TV? You can put, put black bars, which would be totally fine for me on an OLED screen, pure black. But, you know, it defaults to these cartoonish, you know, comic book looking characters that take up the screen. Like, I don't want to see that. So these little details, <laughs> but, you know, what would that cost? You know, like, how much should that retail for? What would you guess? Six Nintendo, you know, 8-bit games on one little purchase. 12 bucks on sale for six and a half pounds. Very, very reasonable. You know, like, I spend more on a drink at a bar, you know? So, like, why would I balk at buying that? You know, why am I not buying it now? It's just because I'm not sure if I want that cover art in my collection, you know, as part of my identity, as part of my collection. Maybe I should because of the nostalgia. But, like, Hollow Knight is such a better version of what Mega Man kind of started. Not that they're exactly in the same, you know, genre worlds. But, you know, certainly some... some influences their 2d platformers as they are with bosses and stuff you know i just i think that i'm not sure i'm not sure i'm like wondering if it's just worth buying and saying hey phil look we can play this you know he played cuphead last time we were um at home together and that was really fun and he was like thinking to me keith you know are there just so many games now and like is is the market so um segmented that a game like this doesn't get the attention that like mario or sonic used to get because because cuphead is a great game it's brilliant and it's super fun and cool and great looking and yet you know most of you dear listeners have not heard of this game cuphead but you've heard of mario and sonic and maybe even mega man and zelda and stuff and it's just interesting that like things just get better and better and yet not as popular or something and um yeah i think that's interesting it's like what does society value you know right now i think a lot of gamers like elder millennials like myself value nostalgia value the kind of property we grew up with you know that's what certainly what hollywood values just rehashing the same properties again and again i don't know if i value that you know i certainly value memories but i've become less sentimental in time, I'm quite jaded at this point. 
I think about this, you know, even in dating, like <laughs> the girl that I see now, it's like there's some simpatico there because neither of us are very like sentimental and like gushy as people. And it's kind of a nice match at the moment. Um, I value that, you know, when I listen to my friends go on about their love lives and how invested or hurt or emotional or, you know, like it's almost like it's too much. It's gushy. It's like, who needs it? You know? And I think that's probably, you know, that's an alloyed, um, emotion for me. I'm not saying it's good to be calloused. Surely dear listener, you might pity me even, but, uh, I know young love. I know the trials and tribulations, the high highs and low lows of romance. And I'm not sure I care about that now. I don't really value it. You know, at what cost does it come? You know? And I just think that we have to think more and more about all the myriad factors that go into this calculus of value. There might not always be a price tag on something. Certain experiences, you know, like skydiving, they have a price tag, you know. Those price tags tend to be high, but they're high because they're memories that will last probably a lifetime. I certainly remember, you know, hang gliding. Um, it costs a lot of the time. I had sticker shock, but that memory will always be there. I, I know what it feels like to like <laughs> glide through the sky like a bird. And I really value that. I really value knowing what that felt like and always being able to recall it. So, you know, in general, the market sets a price for something that we're kind of all agreeing it should cost. And I think people that balk at spending money, penny pinchers, cheap people, you know, um, I'm in that category plenty of times, but it's not because I am afraid to spend money. It's just that I'm not sure if it's worth it to me now. You know, what's the opportunity cost? Is it worth going out to dinner when I can like eat dinner at home for like one tenth the price and feel just as good? Does the social situation beckon me enough? Do I value my time at this dinner table with these people tonight? Or can I meet them later? Maybe they're my close friends that I see all the time and I'd rather save the hundred bucks. You know what I mean? But, you know, if I had, it's not even about having the money and all in the money in the world. Like maybe I don't have the energy. Maybe I want to take a night off from drinking. All of these things come into it. And I guess my, you know, my nerdy persona making spreadsheets, I'm trying to like get there. I'm trying to figure that kind of stuff out. Like what are all of the factors involved? What are all the factors involved? You know, in making this podcast, I have to clear out the time and really focus on doing this. I want to make YouTube videos, but obviously I don't value it enough to do all of the labor. And there is a lot to get a video out there properly. I value sitting on my patio with my dog. I value that more. It's what I would rather be doing. And it comes with a cost. That cost is like un, um, untapped potential, unrealized potential. 
And that does haunt me. And I think probably that is a factor that I have to bring into a rubric, into a formula on a spreadsheet. That is something that I have to really factor in. You know, the opportunity cost of making YouTube videos or not isn't the time I could be spending on a patio in the sun with my dog. It's the future legacy and reputation that I could have that I don't have. And that is where I'm really at when it gets down to it. That's like the depths of what I'm struggling with in terms of value. How do I want to value my time? Do I want to sort of fritter away because I actually quite enjoy doing that? Or do I want to labor and really build something of my life beyond, you know, this like obscure niche creator, bedroom artist is how I would maybe describe myself at this point. Somebody who has never chased the fame and fortune that could be realized, but maybe isn't quite worth the effort to someone like me. I struggle with that. And it comes down to this, this topic, I think, of what I value. You know, I don't want to spend the money on a new camera that might really help make YouTube videos. Because, you know, I already have a couple cameras, but they even though they don't quite do the trick, is it worth spending, you know, 2000 bucks to really create a, you know, YouTube studio? Well, certainly it is if it actually leads to a successful YouTube production, you know, line. But certainly not if it's just another, like, wasted hobby or something like that that collects dust. I'm pretty good at avoiding those kind of things, but you know what I mean? It's like I'll balk, you know, as my mom or brother would on a purchase, you know, it's like not seeing the forest for the trees. It's a hard phrase to really understand, but it's something like losing the bigger picture, getting lost in the weeds and focusing on these little details that prevent you as an excuse from doing something that you should maybe do. These things are worth considering. We have to collaborate in life on our shared values. We have to determine what we're willing to spend collectively. We have to determine if we're willing to bear the costs collectively, or rather individually each. And it makes for some hard conversations, even with people you love, but it's worth having them. It's worth getting to know yourself better and others. It's worth taking on board their perspectives and their values to some extent to at least understand them. It's valuable. It's a valuable thing to do. I'll leave it there, everybody. Happy holidays. Until next time. Ciao.